I think having that in mind that it was bigger than me um, is what made me want to keep going because if, I think if it was all about me, I would have I'd been done. I'd have been over with it. Um, so mile 22 is there. I'm thinking, you know, my niece is watching, the family's watching, everybody's watching. I need to, I need to do this. Um, start running again, get to mile 25, and I'm just out of it. I see Rudy there, Bob's there, um, and I remember I, any energy I had, I, when I'm running, I have a certain rhythm, and so like if I kind of, you know, scraped my foot or, or jolted the wrong way. I would feel a spasm from like the top of my neck down my back, down to my lower back. And I'm just like, I I can't do that again. I need to just run, keep the same momentum forward. I remember I lifted one hand to give Rudy a fist bump and that was, it took everything in me just to do that, you know? <laughs> um, and then that last mile just felt like the longest mile in history. On this podcast, we talk exclusively to Black athletes, whether you're a seasoned vet, a beginner, or someone just considering trying a sport. This podcast is for you. On this episode of Black with Endurance, we are talking to a remarkable athlete, avid swimmer, triathlete, Ironman, just to name a few of his titles. So if you're looking for inspiration, this is the perfect episode. If you know someone who needs a little push to get to training, send them this episode. This man has overcame so much adversity in his lifetime. This has to be the most inspirational man I have ever met. So without further ado... Ladies and gentlemen, Roderick Sewell Jackson. Yeah, so I was born in San Diego, California, um, with missing tibias in both of my legs. And so my mom, at the time, she had just divorced from my dad. Um, So alone with a child who needed special needs, special care. And she was working for the Navy, making pretty decent income. Um, she was able to, you know, afford a car on her own, house on her own. And it's when I came into the world, I, I brought a little bit more complications with me. Um, my mom took me, I remember she said she took me to the doctors and they said that uh, your son could either be amputated or he can be in a wheelchair. Um, you know, she knew what kind of life I would have in a wheelchair. Um, stairs would forever be my enemy. <laughs> this is what she thought. Um, but she had never seen an amputee living on prosthetics and thriving. You know, that wasn't something that was common unless you were in the military, then you had the best care. Um, she took a, a leap of faith. She had a little bit of hope and, and told the doctors to amputate my legs. And I started, I got my first pair of prosthetics when I was two and a half, three years old, started walking on those. And that was the first, you know, those were my first steps. So people always ask me, how long have you been on prosthetics or, you know, or is this new to you? And it's the first thing I say is like, this is all I know. <laughs> there is nothing else. There's no other form of walking. This is, this is it for me. Um, and, you know, for a while, I feel like my mom, myself, my family, we adjusted to 
my condition. You know, my cousins, they, they didn't hold back on me. We were a huge family. They were, they would toss me around. I was lightweight to them. I was the runt of the family. Um, and I, it helped kind of build some kind of character and really taught me how to get back up um, because they didn't take it easy on me. And I, I appreciated that. Um, you know, as time went on, uh, my mom and I were, were living, we're surviving, we're learning about this new life together. And the older I got, the more and more expensive my prosthetics got. So um, I was about, I had to, I was in elementary school. So I think I was second grade, third grade. Um, and I remember, you know, I needed a new pair of legs and it wasn't the same prosthetics that I was getting, you know, they were for an older child. Um, my mom with the, with her job, she didn't have the insurance that she needed to get me my durable medical equipment. Um, so what she did was she filed for unemployment so that I can get the proper care that I needed through, uh, I think it was Medicaid um, or some type of low income insurance that had that option of durable medical equipment. Um, and with that, you know, I, I got my sockets made, I got my prosthetics, I was able to walk and grow and, and live a free life on prosthetics, never wondering if I'm ever going to have my legs, which was a blessing. Um, you know, but it came with a price. Uh, my mom, she, um, you know, she, obviously she quit her job. So we were without money for a, a while. Uh, we ended up selling the car, um, leaving the house. And I'll never forget the day where it just all seemed like it shifted. You know, it was, we were living in this great house, a nice car, yard, everything. And I remember the car was gone. Our house was empty and my mom was carrying me on her back to the bus stop so we can go to our new apartment. Um, and uh, from then on, it was just a domino effect, just downhill. It was uh, jumping from apartment to apartment, staying with family members, family members button heads, um, then we, you know, you can't stay there too long. Um, and then we ended up living in a shelter for on and off for four years. Um, what was that like? It was, you know, for me, I, I feel like it was just, it was an experience. I didn't know what was going on or why it was happening. It wasn't until I got older that I was able to understand what caused us to be in that situation. Um, and now that I'm older, I look back and I'm just like, for me, it was like, okay, you, you, I need a place to stay. I'm a child. I got to go to school. I, gotta, I just need, I just need food and, and the shelter. Um, but for my mom, I'm just thinking like, you're a single mom. You have this child who needs all the special care. You're now homeless. You're getting threats that, you know, people are going to call child services on you and take your child away because you're not able to care for them the way that you should. And, you know, she was just, I remember she was depressed at one time when I was really young and, um, and it really turned into a, you know, it was more than just mother and son. It was like a partnership. Um, I was definitely her, her little psychic, you know, just like yeah. she says, like help her out where you can. Um, and we're both going through this together. So let's keep that in mind. And we kept each other's spirits up. That's epic. When I was I was actually reading your story and I was thinking as a single mother, I was like, I can't 
even imagine what your mother must have been feeling when she decided to leave her job and make that sacrifice. Like, I mean, I can imagine, obviously, but just the just what it takes to do that, to take that leap of faith. And it was really touching. So you you have a great mother. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you guys are so close because it could totally be so different. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> back to the story. So you said you were a young kid then. Mm-hmm. So what happened after the shelters? So when we were in the, the heat of it, um, you know, we're jumping from one shelter where we have to be up and out by 4 a.m. And because uh, they're using a the facility for something else during the, during the day. And um, then we upgraded, upgraded shelters where we get a cot and then a curtain. And I thought we were just big time at that point. We had our own privacy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so at that time, you know, my mom and I were we're just kind of going day by day. She's working. I'm going to school. Um, I remember we were going to go catch the, the trolley one day and there was this woman named Marla Knox who was working with disabled sports out in um, San Diego. Uh-huh. And I remember I saw two trolley track, trolley trains going by on both ends, um, on both rails. And this lady ran across as they're coming to pretty much almost take her out. She had to legit run. So she didn't get hit. Oh wow. And she she ran in front of my mom and I. She was like, have you ever heard of the Challenge Athletes Foundation? And you know, we heard her question, but the only thing we were thinking was this lady almost lost her life. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to tell us about some foundation. <laughs> but you know what? I that was such a highlight. Like I remember that day as clear as day because I'm so glad she told me about CAF. I'm so glad I got to, you know, I got started with them. Um, Challenge Athletes Foundation is a nonprofit that focuses on raising money for individuals with disabilities so that they can live a healthy lifestyle. Um, You know, at that time, I didn't, you know, I'm living in San Diego. I had no idea who they were. And I meet them. I meet the the founders. I meet my friend, Rudy Garcia Tolson, who is like me, another double above knee amputee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I hadn't seen another amputee um, ever. You know, the only time I had really seen one was in the mirror. Yeah. Even that was like, it seemed like something that was rare. Um, So going through all that we went through, I like didn't have time to even think about my disability and and what options I have when it comes to being active or being in sports. Um, So I met met CAF, I met Rudy, and, and I just the floodgates opened. You know, I wanted to do every sport that was possible. Um, I got my first pair of running legs from CAF through a grant. I got um, my first hand bike through them. Uh, They flew me to my first track meet. Um, I was really just, you know, a kid who got into sports the same way you you would put a child into every sport to see what they like. I was trying everything I wanted. Um, And then, you know, meeting Rudy and meeting him, knowing that he's a double above the amputee and, and he was a superstar already at this time. Um, just to give you an idea of how he is now, he's a, a four-time Paralympic swimmer um, working on his fit. And at the time we were little, I was eight and he was maybe 11 going on 12. And he had already mm-hmm. said, you know, I want to go to the Paralympics. Um, so seeing him and, and seeing him swim and me already having this fear of like, you know, I hear black people don't swim. Uh, I have no legs too, so I'm definitely not supposed to be in the water. <laughs> you know, like I was just convinced that swimming was not for me. 
um, and seeing him do it just like shut everything up. I'm like, no, there's no reason why I can't do anything. You know, there's no, there's no limits on what I can do unless I set them myself. So I get swim lessons and I fall in love with the pool. I fall in love with swimming. Um, I, I think it's because I was kind of just naturally shied away from it as I was growing up. And then once I got that comfort, I just always wanted to be in the water. Um, so really getting started with CAF during such a, such a dark time, you know, gave my mom and I this, this, uh, this joy, you know, cause we were exposed to this world where, you know, people don't see it, you know, people don't know at this time, especially people did not know what CAF was. Right. Um, and so for us to have this, that something that felt like our own, you know, it was just something that she had never seen before. And now her son's a part of it. And for me, just to be active, just to be moving, you know, like any child wanted to, um, that was, that was the best part. And it sent us home, you know, we were sleeping with our cots and our curtains, happy, laughing about our day. You know, the, the fact that I flipped in my wheelchair or the fact that I was racing somebody in my racing chair and, and lost or won, whatever. Um, <laughs> we, we had our highlights for sure. Just being active. That's dope. So, so you learned how to swim at eight? I um I got involved with CAF at eight and I learned how to swim when I was ten. Ten, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was like high school like for you when high, high school for me was different? It's very very <laughs> different um, because you know obviously my mom and I were still living at a shelter in San Diego um, when I was in middle school and then mm-hmm. we moved to Alabama. And Alabama and San Diego, you know, <laughs> two different worlds. <laughs> um, I got down to the South and I got exposed to just like, you know, everybody's like, look, they don't see amputees there for sure. Like in San Diego, you had a better chance. Um, yeah. So it, it was definitely a lot of bullying, a lot of just like not knowing, you know, um, and just random questions. <laughs> questions like that you wouldn't what? I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say these questions on yeah, on this show. We're grown. Everybody, <laughs> <are> we, <laughs> like these are questions that children were asking. Now that I think about it, it's like, oh, did, did they cut off your penis too? Or like, like what, what do you mean? <laughs> what, what does that have to do with my legs? <laughs> and it, it's just little questions like that that I'm just like going through high school. It's just uh, the not knowing, you know, about being an amputee and what an amputation is like and how that life is, um, you know, and even for myself, I was still learning myself. So I've, it's funny. I, I feel like I was cool with everybody to an extent, but after school, I didn't see anybody, mm-hmm. you know, we were always cool on the school grounds. You know, I, after a while, I didn't really get picked on as much because I became cool with everyone. Um, but in the beginning, for sure, <laughs> freshman year, there was no holding back. So did you participate in sports while you was in high school? Um, I was going to a facility called the Lakeshore Foundation in Alabama, and they are a Paralympic training site where I can go, I could play wheelchair basketball, I could continue to learn how to swim. Um, and that was my activity. I, you know, they didn't really have any adaptive program at my school. Um, so there wasn't really an option there unless I wanted to compete with 
everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and then even then you have certain coaches, you have certain staff that are like, oh, we don't know, you know, we don't want you to get hurt. You know, and it's just that that natural um just yeah, just ignorance when it comes to somebody with a disability. Um and thinking yeah. or or putting limits on them not knowing what they're capable of. Um but yeah, so that was my that was my activity. That was my sport was swimming and wheelchair basketball through high school. And I remember I got a grant in 2008 from the uh, U.S. Paralympic Academy, where they would send um, Paralympic hopefuls or mm -hmm. or kids who have potential. Um, they were around them up, and we got to go to the Beijing Paralympic Games, and that was epic. <laughs> that was amazing to be, you know, in the in the stands and, and watch the opening ceremony and you see your friends compete. And that year that I went, Rudy was on his second games and oh. um, I got to see him race in his main event, the 200 IM um, and get gold, you know, and being there and seeing that. And for me to be still in this, like, Oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to play basketball? Am I going to swim? Like what's my sport? Um, seeing that kind of, gave me my decision you know <laughs> seeing you up there you know like i was like okay this is what i want for sure and uh, once i got home from beijing i just focused on swimming be sure to follow us on instagram at black with endurance for updates and to find other athletes in your area now back to the show How rare is a um, double knee, above the knee, at double amputee? How rare is that? Very rare. Very, very rare. Um, you know, you, it, in my case, for it to be congenital, uh, with missing tibias, um, yeah, that part is rare. You know, but when it comes to, you have accidents, you have, you know, wounded warriors, you have individuals that are losing their limbs um, in different ways. So there, there are more double amputees especially above knee, um, but no amputation is the same. You know, it's always going to be something different. So it, in my case, it is rare, but there are a lot more amputees today. You also made a statement, um, you know, you were talking about high school and how, you know, folks would put limitations on you or just assume certain limitations without knowing you, probably not even giving you the opportunity. How often do you face that even still, where people just make assumptions when they first see you naturally it's, it's always the case you know and i try to keep in mind that they don't know who i am um or what i'm capable of it's that's on me to know it's not on them to know so i try not to take it personal um and I, i'm just i'm so used to having to prove that you know i can do anything anybody else can i might do it differently I might not do it the same. It might take me a little longer, but <laughs> I'm going to get it done. Um, and so, yeah, even today, I still face the same kind of, uh, it's not It's not negative. It's just pe people in their own mindset and their own thought of what a, what a disability is, yeah. you know, and, and where, why they feel that, oh, he's this. So he must, you know, this, this, and that must be out of the, out of the books like it's definitely not a possibility um and that's where i think the change needs to happen is is really 
reassessing what it means to have a disability and not treating that person like they're less of a person because of Wow, powerful stuff. I'm, I'm just, there's, there's a lot for me to marinate on there because, you know, one of the things why we started Black with Endurance is unique to the Black experience in America is that when folks see our skin color, their stereotypes and prejudices and biases get in the way of them seeing us as individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes some of our own folks, right? Like they see a certain, and then that's what they believe. And now that's a whole nother element and level that you're dealing with, you know, in, in terms of, you know, folks assuming a disability or assuming what you can or can't do. I feel like that's the, you know, I feel like you, you've said it the same way I've been saying most of my life is, and, you know, I was living out in New York for almost three years and I noticed that people were, if they stared at me, they weren't staring at me. You know, they were, they were staring at what they wanted to see, whether it was my legs, where, like you said, it was, whether it was color, whatever, you know, uh, you know, he looks handsome, like whatever they're staring at. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but whatever it is, I know that they're not looking at, they're not looking at the individual. They're looking at what they want to see or what they're, what they're seeing at the time. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a difference when, you know, I'm having, you can tell the difference too, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they see you, they're not like, stuck on the physical you know they're they're seeing your energy they're not seeing your disability right definitely so going a little bit further into your journey because i'm trying to get to how you got to uh iron man championships that's next on my list too i just (laughs) let's go so that it's an interesting story. Um, so obviously I got started with CAF, right? Challenge Athletes Foundation. Uh-huh. And their biggest endurance sport is triathlon. You know, every year we have a fundraiser where we have people of all disabilities around the world come together. Um, really anybody that wants to volunteer and help out. And we have this full weekend of, you know, we have a triathlon on Sunday. We have like a meet and greet on Friday. Um, we have a Twitter cove where you can cycle from 8 a.m. to, I think, 4 p.m. Yeah. Um, and we have like 5K going on, all these events just to get people together and let them know about CAF and what they do for individuals with disabilities. Oh. Um, and so really getting started with CAF got me introduced to triathlon. Um, 2019, 19, excuse me, comes around. And I think it was April 2019 where I got to do a half Ironman in Oceanside. Um, I had a relay set up. It was me and one other guy. I was going to do the swim in the bike or bike, <laughs> the swim in the run. And he was going to do the bike. Um, this one was 1.2 miles. I swam it like 33 minutes, 34 minutes, something like that. And, and then my partner did the bike 56 miles. Um, and then I did the run, which I had been training in New York at that time. Um, obviously my swimming was, was pretty by then up to par. You know, in 2019, I had been already training for 12 years, um, swimming 5,000 meters a session, 10,000 meters a day sometimes. Um, so that's where I really got my endurance. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's where I got the buildup from. Lonnie, just to give you perspective, Lonnie, when yeah. I swim 50 meters, I have to stop and take a break. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so 10,000 meters is like wow to me. God. It's it, 
I'm I'm grateful for it. It sucked at the time. <laughs> I'm grateful for it because it was it, it's really what got me prepared for that race. Um, but you know, I had been running at max like six miles, um, not really having any kind of technique, just kind of going. And so at that race in Oceanside, you know, it's a half marathon. And after the six mile, I'm just like, okay, well, everything from here is just all new. Um, so I finished the half. And my run time was an hour 39. Um, and, you know, that was a shock to, to me. Um, the co-founder of CAF, Bob Babbitt, was there. Rudy was there, my buddy. And we're all just like <laughs> surprised, you know, because I didn't run. That was not a me thing. So to do this phrase <laughs> and to do that time, um, that kind of sparked the idea of, okay, if we if CAF got a slot for you to compete at, Ironman, you know, would you do it? And I remember I got to go do a speech at the Ironman Foundation or, excuse me, the Ironman headquarters in Florida. And um, I told them the only way I would do this race is if you let me use a hand bike and then run to my running blades. Um, Because I do not want to use a stationary bike on my legs. I'd rather use a hand bike where I I can trust my arms. I know it'll get me across the finish line. Yeah. and they did for sure. So late July, I got the Ironman slot. And the first thing I thought was, I don't have a bike. I don't <laughs> own a bike. I don't well, I need to get this first. Um, I had been swimming a lot, running a lot. And uh, thankfully, CAF got me a Kneeler hand cycle, which uh, I don't know if you all saw the the photos, but the, the Kneeler hand cycle is very... Um, picture yourself kind of doing a row and then like a, like a, almost like a chest press forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're pretty much pressing all the way into the wheel. Um, so it's, it's very much kind of forward and then really pulling all the way back. Um, so they got me that bike and I knew that was my weakest was the bike. So I had to really, you know, put some hours on it. So I would do an hour every other day, just going on the bike, getting used to it. Um, and then two weeks would go by, I would add another hour, another two weeks go by, I would do three hour rides every other day. And then, um, usually a swim or a run after. And it got to the point where my longest ride was about 90 miles. Um, so I really had built up my endurance for that. Luckily I had already had the swimming and the running to, to translate onto the bike, but the technique was what I needed. Yeah, is what I needed the most. So it, it was good to put those hours in. Um, and then Kona's there. October 12th, the day is here, right? Uh, it's a little nerve-wracking. You know, I remember the I got there a week before the race, and I remember they, they had helicopters out on the trail or on the on the road course. And I'm just like, oh, this is this is legit. <laughs> this is a big deal. <laughs> I didn't realize how big and one of the best parts of my trip was I got to invite my mom. Um, you know, I remember a few months before then she had just called me and I could tell she was not depressed, but she needed a break. Mm-hmm. You know, she was very much stressed with work and her living conditions. And um, the best thing I could think of was, you know, let's get her a vacation. In Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> um, she didn't know how we were in Hawaii. She didn't know why we were in Hawaii. She just knew we were going to Hawaii for some kind of event. And <laughs> the night before, um, we have like this dinner and 
they show like a, a promo video and they're showing the course, they're showing the conditions, like the heat, the wind. And my mom just does this slow turn. <laughs> just looked at me like, is that why we're here? You're doing this? And I'm just sitting there like, oh, yeah, I was waiting to tell you. <laughs> just trying to find the right moment. <laughs> Seems like now. Um, and, you know, she's just hyped the whole day and nervous about her baby, you know. And uh, in my eyes, I'm thinking oh, she needs to be here to see this because, you know, we had been through so much and there was so much worry from her, from people in the family, like what is going to be of, of Roderick, you know, that he has this disability, what could he possibly do? And, you know, we lived in San Diego where there were a lot of homeless. So there were definitely a lot of homeless individuals with amputations and they thought for sure that was going to be me 20, 30, 40 years from now. Um, and so I, I have her there, race starts, um, the swim was, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad until the end. Um, the wind started picking up. It started getting mad choppy. Um, you know, I've never swam open water and been nauseous when I got out, but I definitely was that day. Um, so the swim I finished in an hour and nine minutes for a 2.4 mile swim. Um, and then get to the transition, seven minutes in transition. I start the bike. And for us, this, I feel like this was the, the fear, you know, is we got to make the bike cut off. Um, you know, my buddy Rudy, who I told you is a four-time Paralympian, um, he attempted Kona in 20, 2009, I think it was. Yeah. And, you know, I remember how hard it was on him, on his body and what it took to really build up that, that strength. And he had missed the bike cut off by 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, for me, like in my eyes, I'm like, you have? How much Say time again, do you sorry. have? Much you time? have for the bike cutoff, I think you have nine and a half hours. Um, and he, he had just missed it. Um, but it was an issue with the, the cleat and, and, and on his bike. And it was a lot of things could go wrong for sure during the Ironman. Um, and so that that was kind of hanging over our heads like, oh, man, I hope, I hope. You know, I just got my bike three months ago. I hope I'm, <laughs> I make this bike cut off. And, um, you know, I had some some scares out there. I, I remember going up high V and just feeling sick. Um, I was overeating, over overhydrating, uh, threw up twice. And I just thought, you know, this is this is it. I'm done. Like, I, who's going to come pull me out of this race? Obviously, I'm, I'm not going to finish. And. Once I realized that I can either keep going or stop, I, I told myself, I'm just going to keep going until somebody tells me that I can't go anymore. You know, I'm going to keep going until they say, like, oh, you didn't make the cutoff. And let's see what happens. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm going. The wind was the hardest part. The heat wasn't as bad. And I don't know if it's because I was there a week before. Um, but I think there have been hotter years in Kona for their Ironman. Um I think we got up to 100, but they've been at 104, you know, and, and with no cloud coverage. You know, for us, we had cloud coverage. So I was definitely like, thank you, Island Gods, <laughs> for <laughs> the cloud coverage. Um, and uh, so I make it through the bike and I have 30 minutes to spare. So I made uh, close to about nine hours. Um, and I remember my lower back was just tore up. 
uh, just from the, the shock of the bike and sitting in that position for, for so long. So I, I stood up in my running legs and I kind of had to stand, loosen up my lower back a little bit because my running legs, and you can see in the videos, I run without knees. So I'm, I'm swinging my legs around with each step. Um, and all that pressure really goes to my lower back. So I knew, you know, my lower back had to be some kind of loose or, or feeling better before I just take off. Um, so I start to run and I see my mom there screaming, going crazy, <laughs> like wondering where I've been all day. Um, <laughs> and uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're, this is really going to happen. You know, I got Bob Babbitt from CAF there. I got Rudy there, my mom there. Um, and I'm thinking, like, all I need to do now is just make it. <laughs> I just need to finish. I don't need to. I don't care about time. I just need to make it. Um, the first nine miles of the run, it's hard to go slow. It is, it's really hard to go slow because you're running through the town. Um, during the Ironman, it really does turn into like Ironman Island because, you know, the, the locals are so welcoming and so warm and really hype up this event. Like everybody's out volunteering, everybody's tuning in, everybody's there to see what's going on. And so, you know, we've, we've been hyping this up for months now and I'm, I'm doing the run. I'm seeing family and friends just cheering. Like, of course, they're sitting at these bars, drinking beers, eating food. And I'm just <laughs> running by like, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, their energy, you just feel it the whole nine miles. Like I tried my best to slow down. and It, it was not happening whatsoever. Um, but mile 11 hit and then you're out there on the Green K Highway. And there's nobody cheering anymore. Everybody is, the only people out there are the people that are racing and everybody's quiet. Everybody is, you know, dead. Um, and I remember mile 11 was when I started walking because I, I was just like, I can't, I need to take a second. Um, but I told myself to keep going until I needed to walk. And that's when it was. So I walked from 11 to 12. Mile 12, I started running. Um, mile 16, to 17, I walked again. I probably shouldn't have, um, but I was in the energy lab, which I'm running out of it at this point. And you're looking at the island. Sun's gone down already. I've watched the sun come up and go down. That's amazing. Um, and I look at the island and, and the way the city sits on the peak. And it was just, it was one of those moments where I just had to walk and kind of take it all in, you know, and, and acknowledge like, whether I fail or whether I finish, um, to enjoy this moment, you know, enjoy this time. Cause it Finn Coffee is a small batch coffee roasting company based in the Bay Area in California. Finn Coffee is not your average coffee company. Their roots come from a deep passion to provide premium coffee to elite athletes, weekend warriors, nature lovers, and adventure seekers. They stand out from the rest, not only due to their premium beans, but from the variety of products they offer. Whether it's starting your day with their morning brew or their espresso shots for a midday run boost, they are here to support your every adventure need. So make sure to check out Finn Coffee. Go to fincoffee.com to order yours now. Start running again and mile 20 hit. And it was like a slap in the face of just like, 
there's nothing left. You you swam 2.4 hours ago. <laughs> you you biked 112 miles, and now you run 20 miles, and you have six miles left. And, you know, I'm I'm I I was done. I was I was complete. That was all I had. And I remember walking for two miles, and in that I did like the the Iron Man shuffle that they call it, <laughs> where you just uh, you you try you try to run. And then your body's just like, no, you're not. You're going to walk. And then you try to get that motivation again and then try to run and you start walking even slower, you know? <laughs> so it was it was very much that time where I was like, and at this time, you know, it's late. There's cars and people on their bikes riding by saying, you know, if you don't start running now, you're going to miss a cutoff. And I'm hearing this like, oh, my God, I, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm really trying my best. Um, and then I, you know, I remember thinking about who was watching. I remember thinking about what this meant um, more than just for myself, you know, what this meant for my family and um, what this what this would do for us having yeah. something like this and knowing that there were there were children watching that also have, you know, disabilities that were curious how this was going to go down and, and wanted to see wanted to see me succeed. Um, and just people, I was getting videos and, and messages and everything all day. And I, luckily, Rudy was on my um, my account running everything for me. So he was replying back to everybody like, oh, he's doing well. He's doing good. He's out. Um, but there were just people worldwide inspired. And, and um, regardless if I finished or not, they were motivated. And I feel like at that time, when it's just so dark and quiet out there, um, I really feel like I, I could feel everybody who was wishing me well, you know, anybody that was praying for me, anybody that was wanting me to to finish. I felt like I got knocked, like, not in a bad way, but like almost pushed. Like, you, you got this, you have to keep going. And I think having that in mind that it was bigger than me um, is what made me want to keep going because it I think if it was all about me, I would have been done. I'd have been over with it. Um, so mile 22 is there. I'm thinking, you know, my niece is watching, the family's watching, everybody's watching. I need to, I need to do this. Um, I start running again, get to mile 25, and I'm just out of it. I see Rudy there, Bob's there, um, and I remember I any energy I had. I when I'm running, I have a certain rhythm, and so like if I kind of, you know, scraped my foot or, or jolted the wrong way, I would feel a spasm from like the top of my neck, down my back, down to my lower back. And I'm just like, I, I can't do that again. I need to just run, keep the same momentum forward. I remember I lifted one hand to give Rudy a fist bump and that was, it took everything in me just to do that, you know? <laughs> um, and then that last mile just felt like the longest mile in history. Um, I remember I was hangry. So I was, uh, I remember shouting, like, because everybody's telling you the whole time, like, oh, you're almost there. The finish line's almost there. And you just don't see it. You don't see it anywhere. <laughs> and so I remember shouting, like, where is this? Like, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> where is this finish line? And there's this guy on a bike, like, oh, just go this way. <laughs> you know, it's right here. And I, I hope I get to talk to him one day because I definitely came off kind of, kind of upset. Like, I was very hangry. Um, but I told him thank you, and I'm, I'm like following the path, and 
um, you know, when you come up to the finish line, you see all the volunteers that have been there. You see the just the support that is there and you hear the roar of everybody cheering and clapping. And I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, my God, this is really happening. You know, and in my mind, I'm wondering, did I miss the cutoff already? Um, I'm thinking like, oh, my God, don't trip, don't fall. <laughs> like, I'm just completely caught off the situation. And um, I remember I get across the finish line. I still trip on the finish line. Didn't fall, but definitely like <laughs> almost lost it. Um, and, you know, I hear those magic words, you know, you are an Iron Man. And um, I didn't take the moment to really take it all in. I really just wanted to to see my mom first uh, because I wanted to see her reaction. You know, she's been watching people race all day now. She saw the pros come in and um, under eight hours and, and faster or sorry, that would be in the fastest. Um, and so she knew like how tough this was seeing other athletes come in, just looking beat and me being out there double the time, you know, um, so when I came in, you know, I'm not breathing hard. I'm not, you know, crying or sad. I look at her and I smile, you know, in my eyes, I'm thinking, you know, this is, this is what you did. You know, I just want you to know, like it, all this that you saw today was because of what you did for me way back when, you know, and I remember she hugged me. She's crying. She's like trying to give me a towel. She doesn't know what I need at that time. So she just throws a towel on me. <laughs> yeah right she's like what do you need do you need anything are you okay just like just frantic you know and I told her I was fine I remember I shed one tear we hugged I shed one tear in her in her hair the braids she had at that time um and then I remember she asked me like if I was okay and I said yes and then she was like oh you did that shit there boy oh my god it's like all this hypeness in my ear when everybody's just yelling around us <laughs> um and it was just a highlight and it really just, it was a, a spark that just ignited so much, you know, whether it was in myself, my mom, family, um, it's just really, you know, we, we come from a background of just struggle, just from every corner, you know, and whether it was our own personal struggles, whether it was our, our family struggles or our historical struggles, that's where we came from. And yeah. for, for this to happen, everybody was just like in a different mood, just kind of taken back and, and realizing all of our worth, you know, and, and seeing that this guy, you know, years ago, we used to be afraid that he was going to be just struggling, you know, but if you give him the proper resources and the things he needs, look what you can get. Um, and that's kind of what, I wanted to say with, with doing that race and, and letting it be known that disability is a disability. It doesn't mean that I can't do what you do. You know, I, I might do things very differently, um, but it, it, there's no limit to what I'm capable of. And that goes for any individual with a disability. Um, yeah. Let them find out for themselves what they're, what they're capable of and what they can do. And yeah. if anything, support them and help them in any way. Don't, don't limit them. So if there are any disabled children or, you know, adults that are listening to this or parents of children, what, what advice or resources would you suggest for them to, you know, get involved in sports? For sure. I would definitely, 
I would definitely say to reach out to the Challenge Athletes Foundation, um, the challengeathletes.org. Mm-hmm. And they have different ways that you can get involved, different ways that if you're looking to get some kind some type of equipment or gear, they can help you with that. Um, and also, you know, if they want to reach out to me, um, I have my own website, rodericksoul.com. Um, they can reach out to me that way. And then if they have any questions when it comes to resources or um, just anything, just want to talk, you know, I'm definitely there for that. Okay. Okay. Coach, do you have any other questions? You know, um, I really don't. And I'm I'm good with the questions, man. I really am. But uh, (laughs) you just got me inspired. So. And I'll be honest with you, like literally I, I sent the YouTube, um, your your YouTube story to my friend that I was swimming with today. And when he left the pool, he was like, man, I don't think I can do this one. He's like, I see you, coach. I, I feel you. But this swimming stuff is hard. And I sent him your YouTube and he just texted me. He's like, damn, now I got to hop back in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> no excuses. That's no the goal. Excuses, man. So I, I think really the question is, you know, how can we get your story out to more people and how can we um, how can we help you? Like like with whatever endeavors that you have going on, what can we do to support? So I'm doing a diversity and inclusion task force with CAF right now, obviously, with everything that was going on in 2020, um, still going on in 2021. Um, I, you know. Everybody's aware now that there needs to be a change when it comes to people of color. There needs to be a focus when it comes to people of color. And CAF has such a good blueprint where they they reach communities that are underserved in every region of all colors, which I love. Um, But with that being said, we know which communities are underserved the most and we know which ones need to be um, uplifted the most. And so with that being said, I'm trying to go around and and speak on multiple podcasts, specifically on podcasts that are focused on people of color um, and let them know about CAF and let them know about what we can do for individuals with disabilities. And hopefully with this through word of mouth, they'll they'll be willing to apply. So, um, you know, just let people know about myself, about CAF. um, And then if you have any other other podcasts or, or anything that you know of to please let me know so that I can, you know, reach out to them and, and really get the word out. Cause there's so many people with disabilities that have no idea what they can do. You know, I was, I was um, walking home from my interview today with um, horizon prosthetics and I want to get involved with them where we're, we're, building a community of amputees that know about each other, that that communicate with each other, that have this reliability on one another and really building this family. And I can only imagine how many people of color with disabilities are out there that think they're alone, you know, that think they're really nothing out there for them. And my yeah. goal is to get to them before their mindset just goes the wrong way. Definitely. Because, um, you know, we're, you know, the black community we already have a huge underserved community but people don't realize that the disabled black community is even more underserved than all of us like they have a double whammy 
<laughs> so and so to already be living in poverty and then to be disabled and not have resources mm-hmm. and then have the mental anguish of whatever traumas are being raised growing up in it's really a differentiating factor compared to you know some other races so um, i also have another podcast i think dr brown might have told you about unrelenting humans where uh, i talk to adaptive and injured athletes um about you know their stories of overcoming adversity and stuff to help raise awareness there so i want to ask if i could maybe use this this interview for both podcasts yes please for sure (laughs) of course <laughs> and also, I, I will um, reach out to other podcasts I know and tell them about you to see if we can get you, you know, more um, interviews in any way we can help. Thank you. I appreciate this. Absolutely. I, I think my it's not really a question. It's more of just a statement. And then I want your input. Um, I'm, I'm starting to question my I love my culture, love it. Like I'm, I embody it. And because I love it, I like to try to think about it critically and where can we improve? As I think about, um, you know, our culture in terms of our silent assumptions of disabled folks and, and disability and kind of, you know, you, you, you kind of push those folks in the back of the room. There's an expectation that you need to be elite jumper, elite runner, elite football player. And if you're not at that elite level, then you know there's no room for you, and so as we share your podcast and and um, you know share your story, I I think those are some of the assumptions that I need to challenge a little bit more, even for myself, just to be quite honest. It's it's definitely something that I've learned to work on as well because I you know even living with a disability, there's certain things that I don't think about. You know, there's certain things that I don't consider until I um, am brought to awareness by somebody else who's living with something that I just wouldn't even fathom, you know? Um, so I think it is definitely a, a something with communication when it comes to, to speaking with these individuals and on that base level, treating them like an individual, but realizing that they, like any person really, have, they live a life that I might not understand or that I don't completely understand. Um, everybody's got their, their inner internal or external differences. Uh, it's just minor, more visible or somebody with a disability could or could not be as visible. Um, and so it's really just, once you have that base of, of, okay, this is a person first, then you really grow from there. Man. Okay. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Gosh. Bro, you the bomb, brother. You the bomb. <laughs> we gotta get you a. We gotta get you a podcast. We I, I need to tap into your energy. Like, I'm waiting for the book. Is where, where is the book coming out? For the book, <laughs> yeah, man. For the book. I'm working on it. I am. Uh, I don't know if I told you all, but I, I am. I'm still training for the Paralympics. Um, I've been training for swimming. Second, yep, for Tokyo. Can I go to Tokyo? Hey. We. I. I. You know, once we have this race in April, I'll have a better understanding of where I am. And, you know, with, with COVID, we still have to see how things are going to go. Um, but it's looking positive right now. Uh, I'm going for the 100-meter breaststroke and swimming. And then uh, for cycling as well, the road race. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's always something. But I have to finish this part first. And then once that's finished, then I feel like I can really finish the book. Yeah. No, I feel that. Well forward to it. I look forward to seeing you. It is, it was crazy. <laughs> I think I just, I just got off. Um, 
uh, me and my partner uh, with our nonprofit, we just talked to Jamal Hill with Swim Up Hill, and he's nice. going. So, mm-hmm. that's so awesome <laughs> yeah that's the jamal is a good friend of mine he is um he's doing it like he, he puts me to shame honestly like he's such a he's he just is well-rounded he just has all everything just in order and um yeah great guy fast swimmer um he's got some fast people in his class yeah uh, so it will be a fight but yeah he's really good <laughs> Dope, dope. Yeah. No, I like his program, the Swim Appeal thing. He's nice. going to um, actually, I guess the program is to teach our staff how to teach the kids how to swim. And it's, okay. it's gonna be dope. I don't know. Nice. I don't swim that well. So it's learning <laughs> experience. <laughs> you guys are so inspiring. Oh my God. Man. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have oh. to tell him I talk to you. Oh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> That's wild. Small world. <laughs> All right. So I'm trying to think, did we leave out anything? I hope not. I I, I got my notes covered. I'm I, I'm just going to say, you know, we got to move this one up to the front. Like this has to come out now. Like this, we need this right. The world needs this right now. Right. Right. Definitely. I can do that. I can yeah. put that out uh, this week coming up and then move forward with everything else. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let you get back to your training and be respectful of your time. Thank you again. Sincerely. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Have a good day. (laughs) Same to you. Thank you again. All righty. Bye. Oh, my God, Lonnie. Damn. That story, man. Yes. And we didn't even have to say that. I was just like listening. I felt like I was watching a documentary. And uh, but still, it's just a remarkable story of perseverance and faith and the decision. Like, man, black women be making some fucking decisions and sacrifices, man. What an incredible interview with Roderick Sewell Jackson. His story is so freaking inspiring. Man, I swear that pulled at my heartstrings everywhere. So when before I we interviewed him, I read an article and while I was reading the article, I was in tears. I was in tears especially when I was reading about his mother's decisions, how she had to make the decision to amputate his legs so he could have some type of normal life and when she had to quit her job when she had to leave her job in order to get medical benefits to cover Roderick's needs that part that part hit hard that is something that we're still dealing with today and that's a whole another subject that we need to like take to clubhouse but it's real and it's it's a sad realization that people have to do this and choose to do this like because i mean people have medical needs and if you're working a full-time job your family should be covered regardless like so we're gonna get into that a little bit later but Roderick's story is so incredible for so many different reasons he overcame so many different types of adversity in his lifetime it's 
way more than just the physical limitations. Like that's one part. Then you have the mental aspects of it too, the social economical standpoint. I mean, dealing with race and a disability and having to be in poverty, being homeless, I mean, a single mom, there's so many dynamics there that could have affected him in a very negative way. I don't think a lot of people really understand that. Like some people only have one or two of those and they don't really make it <laughs> and they can like fall into the rabbit hole going down the path of of crime or drugs or doing other you know stuff that's I'm not gonna say <laughs> but there's there's so many different ways that that could have went he could have been a homeless person you know in a wheelchair you know so all the adversity that he has overcome is is amazing and whenever his book comes out I will be one of the first people buying that book <laughs> and shouting it from the mountaintops so also I'm gonna, I hope they come out with a movie too because uh yeah this uh story needs to be huge I'm gonna call it Oprah no <laughs> just kidding but it was a great pleasure talking to Rajik. I look forward to seeing what he has um, coming up. Also, seeing him in the Tokyo Olympics is going to be great. Um, I His story is just so inspirational. Like I, I don't even know what else to say. It was incredible. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I hope that it has ignited a fire within you to not ever give up. Nothing is ever too hard. You can keep going regardless of your circumstances. So keep pushing. And I will also add the Challenge Athletes Foundation website in my show notes for anybody interested in seeing if or how they can help out. Um, so check it out. Also, if you're not already, don't forget to like subscribe follow leave a review uh really appreciate it it really helps us if you um you know leave a review and rate us uh also if you're not already follow um subscribe to my other podcast unrelenting humans i will be coming out with season two uh before the summer and this episode will also be on there, but um, it's going to be a, a little bit different dynamic on that um, podcast. I am going to get some guest hosts, so it's going to be very interesting to see who's going to be on there. So make sure you subscribe, and I want to thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to leave them in the comments or DM me on Instagram at Black with Endurance. Or if you want to, shoot me an email at blackwithendurance at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our website, blackwithendurance.com. We have some new merch on there. So check it out and um, let me know what you think. Take care.